Korean stuff is kind of going to the social critique. So maybe they're kind of feeling a niche that's just not taken. Mm. And I guess the interesting question, why are those things are produced in Korea? And I do not have a definitive answer, but maybe like one way to think about it is like who produces those films? And like in Korean studies, like we often talk about like this three, six generation. Uh, basically people who were like active during democratization movement and grew up like with this Marxist critical ideas. And in a way those people are, I guess in their fifties, maybe early sixties now, and they are kind of influencing cultural industries and many other industries. So in a way, like those kind of critical sensibilities, they are shared by many people in power in Korea now. So I wonder if it kind of trickles down to movie industry and it's like kind of allows for social critiques in popular culture, which don't quite happen in other places. But that's just like a wild speculation. I like wild speculation sometimes. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Career Deconstructed podcast. It's 2023 and we're getting up to nearly 50 episodes of this. It's been a fantastic journey. Thank you for being part of it with me. This is a conversation done with Dr. Olga Fedorenko of Seoul National University. She's an anthropologist there and studies various aspects of Korea. It was a conversation that I'd had lined up for quite a while, so I was really happy to get it done. This year, I'm moving to do more in-person conversations. There's something about being in the same physical space with somebody that adds an unquantifiable element for me that I believe is really fantastic. This is a conversation done with Dr. Fedorenko across the internet, uh, and so... Although it's an amazing conversation, the sound quality isn't as good as I would hope at times. Please be patient with me. There's more coming. There's more in-person conversations coming. And of course, you can watch them all and this one on YouTube if you wish as well. Thank you for being part and listening to the Career Deconstructed podcast. Get in touch. Join the conversation. Let us know what you think, who you want to hear from, what topics you want us to cover or just how we can improve going forward. I like hearing your questions, your comments, your ideas, your suggestions, your refutations. Quite simply, I like hearing your voice as well. Thank you. Dr. Fedorenko, thank you for speaking with me and joining us on the Career Deconstructed podcast. I've got so many questions that I want to ask you based on your work, your research, and the excellent academic things that you do. But I would like to start with this one, because Dr. Fedorenko, you arrived in South Korea in 1998, and you came from Russia. And I'm so curious what it must have, what South Korea was like then, particularly coming from Russia at that time. What was, what was the infrastructure like? What was, what was the public transport? What was the food like? What did the people look like? What were the, what were the choco pies like? I'm not sure, you know. Well, what was that ground level reality, Dr. Fedorenko, of arriving in South Korea in 1998 from Russia? Well, that was a long, long time ago. So it's kind of hard to remember. Uh, so it was October, 1998. Hmm. 
So sometime after so-called IMF crisis has hit Korea, so all those consequences were on the ground, I suppose. But coming to Korea as international students, that was my first experience to Korea, so I really had no point of comparison. So it didn't seem, I guess, I guess I had no expectations, so it could not not look as I expected, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But I do have one little memory which kind of struck me. It might have been my first week in Korea, and I was going to language school, Ohaktan, and there was a group of us, international students, getting on the train, and the music playing, I guess, on the station radio was exactly the same that was playing on, like, I don't know, station radios in Moscow. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it weirdly felt like, okay, I guess globalization has happened. The world <laughs> is kind of the same everywhere. The music is the same everywhere. So it was kind of a bit of a disappointment that it didn't feel like somehow radically different. So yeah, that's kind of what I remember now. That's amazing because I felt the same disappointment. I I thought I was going to come to a place. I, it's not the same disappointment, but I thought I was going to come to a place and go and sit with a old guy with a white beard and smoke a pipe in the hills and find my inner penguin and be all this Buddhist mystical, you know, completely incorrect preconceived ideas of South Korea. And I came here and there was loads of churches and department stores and fast food restaurants. And I was like, really? <laughs> It, it, it took a while to find it. You said that you were going to language school. I, how's your Korean? I, I just finished uh, reviewing a book by uh, Fyodor Tetitsky. He's, he's a scholar of North Korea. Mm -hmm. Does some excellent work, but his language skills are just wow. How are you? How are you with Korean? Well, my Korean is kind of intermittent. Mm -hmm. I actually was very enthusiastic about learning Korean when I got here in 1999 mm. and put a lot of effort into that and had many Korean friends and basically just kind of wanted to go, you know, full energy into Korean mode. And back then, like, expat scene was quite different, actually not that super interesting. So in a way, like, kind of hanging out with Koreans was much, 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 much more fun. So that was back then, and then I guess many things happen, and now I am teaching in English at Seoul National University. Mm. And in a way, I don't really have that many opportunities to speak Korean, so I kind of feel like my Korean has been progressively deteriorating. So yes, like kind of use it for field work, I guess occasional faculty meetings, but in a way that's kind of narrow pockets of life where mm. it is relevant. So yes always feel like I should be doing more but then you know the choice is the right articles or practice Korean and I guess being it's all day I kind of have to prioritize articles and you do write a lot of articles you sent me that list and I was like wow this is this is productivity well, that's why my Korean is deteriorating <laughs> do you just just before we go to some of your articles and things do you think because I was speaking to this with my previous guest so I just want to explore it with you do you think um speaking Korean, knowing the language, does it give you a different view? Does it give you a different insight? Or is it, well, or is it a case of whether you speak the language or you don't, you're still experiencing the same Korea? Or do you think that if you do interact in Korean with Korean people, you're getting into a different perspective that you might not otherwise see? How do you go on that conversation? Well, 
No, I mean, I think there's kind of no question there. Of course, language opens many doors and changes like how people respond to you. Mm. Like even like little things, if you speak Korean, like you could, I don't know, chat up a person at a restaurant and they tell you something and I don't know, maybe get like some extra service. So just mm -hmm. basically it enriches your interactions in like, yeah, incomparably, I think. I speak to the taxi drivers. I like to know what, just everybody, but the people in the restaurants, yes. And yeah, I, I like to know what people are thinking. It's very important. Yeah, I guess it's kind of like a classic trope in many ethnographies of Korea, like an anthropologist is riding a cab and chatting a taxi driver and they give them their like deepest insight into their field work. Yes. At least a couple of books I can think of doing that. Oh, really? I, I'm, I'm not doing that. I'm just often taking taxis when I'm drunk and taxi drivers want to speak to me and when I speak back in Korean and tell them what I'm doing they they like to unload everything I I, I think they're obviously generally elderly gentlemen with a lot to say I guess but that's what they do I want to ask you if I can I'll go about contemporary South Korea because that's what a lot of your work is and uh, a, a mutual acquaintance of ours Dr Henry M he was the he was the gentleman that recommended that I speak to you and it was on this topic of contemporary South Korea and before we get into some of the details I wonder if you might sort of play out contemporary South Korea is it a conservative place is it a progressive place is it is it secular is it Confucian is it is it hypermod like how do you understand this contemporary South Korea that we inhabit today? Well, in a way, it is kind of a question I'm trying to answer with my research. Mm. And in a way, there is really no simple answer, as I'm sure you're self-aware, because depending where you go, you could find all kinds of things you listed. So in a way, maybe for me, what's interesting about South Korea is how it is like a place where many contemporary processes kind of unfold in accelerated way, kind of concentrated way. So in a way, like as a scholar of contemporary society, South Korea offers many opportunities to be kind of like slightly ahead of the curve, especially like studying media and popular culture. Mm. So like... One of the examples I like to do in my classes on media, um, first election won by the internet, like kind of by the internet politics, like by internet netizens. So in South Korea, it's 2002, Noam Hyun's election. In the United States, it's six years later, 2008, Obama election. So kind of like little things like that. Or even with fandoms, for example, you know, this participatory youth culture is kind of everywhere, but Korean fandom participatory culture kind of took it on a very different level and in a way that is influencing other youth cultures in different places. So in a way, it is kind of like peculiar place, but those peculiarities see almost kind of like this concentrated things that are happening elsewhere. Mm. So I don't know if that answers the question. No, it, it raises more questions. That is brilliant. <laughs> Do you have any idea as to why South Korea was so quick to adapt these 
internet or these technological approaches. So you mentioned No Mi Hyun's uh, election, and that was the internet victory that he won with people mobilized online uh, to support him. We know all about the fandoms and how mobilized they are across the history of K-pop. Was there a reason? Because if we think of sort of Korea in terms of social values or progressive values or, or these things, it always seems a bit behind the curve to certain international standards. But in terms of this one, it's you're, you're positioning it ahead of the curve. Well, as far as I know, it's like this telecommunications, internet industries, in a way, it was all those developments like around after Asia debt crisis, after like IMF crisis, when Korean government actually put a lot of effort in building up that infrastructure. And in a way, that's kind of like very prosaic answer. The infrastructure was there. Mm -hmm. and mm. People just got on it and used it. It, it. They do. And when I'm, I try to put this idea across to my, my students or, or people when I'm lecturing that for, for young people today, South Korea is kind of more hyper-individualistic more so than other countries like they've really got into that telecommunications this kind of device thing like this that there is this textbook idea that South Korea is collectivist and interdependent and high context and there's some truth to that but I also see young people today and they're, they're really into these devices and hyper-individual with them it's amazing how quickly these things could change I think I'm not sure if it's a change or if it's kind of coexistence of different aspects because like with certain things like you know with cell phone even if you want to you cannot use it collectively like right. so in a way technology kind of forces this particular usage but like with certain things again like closest to home like university culture still okay sure students kind of compete with each other especially if like some curve grading is enforced but at the same time there is like a lot of sharing going between hube sonbe and in a way there is some kind of like this collective identity there and there is no contradiction there just kind of slightly different aspects of life governed by slightly different logics mm. and different mediums i guess different resources affecting how those how those play out yes i I loved it during COVID when those kind of curved gradings went away, at least at the universities I was teaching, they were far more lenient on it, but curved grading is such a, is such a bane sometimes. Do you have any um, sense of how, you've already mentioned the Asian financial crisis or known locally here as the IMF crisis. Do you have any sense of how Korea got to contemporary South Korea? So obviously there's, there's the Joseon dynasty, there's traditional Korea, and there's lots of it in between. And we can't narrate the whole history, but I'm wondering if you you might, uh, a pivotal moment or an important thing. I was recently reading um, uh, Inam He's book about uh, the politics of time and memory. In, in, it just in came out, right? Yeah, and I, I read through it. It was, it was very interesting. I, I liked her previous book on the Minjung as well. Uh, but in that, she suggested that certain sections of the uh, Undongwon saw 1987 as a failed revolution. It, it, it brought democracy, but it didn't bring what the certain sections of the Korean left wanted. How do you understand Korea's journey to contemporary life? What were some you know, points in the road or some 
missed opportunities or some pivotal moments, decisive factors in getting here, Olga? I guess I'd be curious how you would define contemporary here. Mm. And because that's actually kind of open-ended question. Like I'm just reminded um, before teaching at SNU, I was teaching at NYU and I was asked to teach a course, Issues and Debates in Contemporary Korea. Mm. And they gave me a syllabus of a person who was teaching it before, and their contemporary career started in the late 19th century. <laughs> Just kind of like, oh, okay. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I guess like an anthropology, we don't really think of that as contemporary. That's like, yeah, modern. So, like, I guess when does contemporary start? Are we talking about 21st century? Are we talking kind of post democratization? I, I, I guess. <laughs> I teach a class in contemporary Korean studies and I start with uh, Tangun Haraboji and, and myths okay. and things like that. I start 5,000 years ago, so you'll hate me. Um, but I guess I'm asking, how did it get where it is? Like, in, a, in the very simplest ways, we're in 2023. I think most people know where Korea is to a certain extent today in terms of economics, politics, and society. But was it, I know some people narrate it through a miracle on the hand or five-year plans or the the labor of women in factories uh things like this i'm just from your perspective what was an important part of that journey so i guess like when i was teaching that course issues and debates on contemporary korea i decided like okay maybe i shouldn't start from 19th century because that's a little bit far so i did start in 1945 this kind of national division because that was like one moment which well, defined many things mm -hmm. to come and I guess you had like a conversation about that with uh, Professor Henry M so I'm definitely not going there um, I guess for studying kind of Korean media popular culture things I do Kind of the most decisive developments would be like in the 80s mm -hmm. and like some of those are technological developments like you know emergence of color television for example uh, and of course like political developments like such as democratization which in many ways changed the rules how media is produced and changed like media landscape so definitely that would be kind of like one touch point there Mm. And usually, I guess, the story goes then into, well, 1997, Asian debt crisis, like IMF crisis, all those things. And it's actually kind of interesting to think what moments are important after that. And I guess probably Pakhaneya's impeachment, 2016-17, that's definitely kind of a, a big moment there. And... I don't know, it seems kind of difficult to identify other things. Well, I guess Corona has changed many things, but we are not quite far on the other side to see actually if any of those changes are staying or not. I didn't wear a mask today. It's the first day and I oh, loved wow. it. Yeah. Well, by, by law, at least, I was allowed to do that. And, and, and so I did. You mentioned there, and, and this is obviously related to your work, but the liberalization or at least the loosening of restrictions on media you mentioned sort of the color televisions in the 80s and was that how did 
how did media become liberalized? Was it, I, I've heard all before about Chanduan's like 3S policy and things like that. Was it, was it liberalized from the top down as like a gift to people and say, hey, look at this stuff. Don't pay attention to our human rights. Or was it fought from the bottom up? How did media in South Korea become liberalized? That's a very broad question, but. Oh, I think the main development like was this promise of democratization was amendment to constitution, which made freedom of speech constitutionally protected. Mm. So that was a big deal. And so that like meant abolition of censorship, other things at around the same time, like 1988, where abolished all these restrictions, which allowed for, which basically limited number of media outlets. So before, like under Tundo Juan, there was like a limited number of newspapers that could publish, mm -hmm. could be published. And those limitations were gone and suddenly, well, anyone who wants to publish a newspaper can do so. So the number of media outlets mushroomed. She has a statistics in my book, but I, I'm kind of afraid to exaggerate it off the top of my head, but it was mm -hmm. like exponential. It's like many, many, many more things were published and that happened over a short period of time. So on the one hand, it kind of meant this more opportunities to express different things. On the other hand, it also meant that all those new media were fighting for the same amount of advertising money, which made them much more vulnerable to kind of demands from advertisers. So in a way, it was kind of complicated situation. So they were free from the state, but more dependent on capital. Mm. I get that. Yeah. And so they would have had to have, you know, pushed what they're doing in order to get those contracts, in order to compete, in order to do that. You mentioned there was a quantitative difference in terms of the amount, this exponential growth of new media and advertisers was there also a difference in like qualitative like in terms of the media being produced pre-88 and post-88 did it go from sort of you know top buttons up to all of a sudden cleavages in one day or we love the president to you know was there a, was there a dramatic change overnight or did it slowly take time to can't really answer about media in general because I haven't like really researched that. But with yeah, advertising, okay. actually, it was quite interesting because it took a little bit of time, but suddenly uh, there were like all this nudity in advertising and liberalization of what advertising could say. And at that point, advertising was not yet considered part of that freedom of speech provisions that would come later. Mm. That would come like in 2008 but like overall kind of landscape that suddenly like all these things could be expressed because it's democracy that definitely was noticeable and again some of it went into politics and provocative themes like around 1999 2000 like there's like this popularity of North Korean themes in advertising Mm. Like, kind of like advertising playing with this idea of unification and people who I interviewed about that they would say well you know before you couldn't do that that would be censored that's too provocative 
and now we have freedom we can talk about that so but the question is like okay is discussing politics what kind of freedom is that discussing politics and advertising so that's just in a way that's where kind of interesting developments why did it take until 2008 for the advertising you said that there was there was that sort of 20 year period almost right until that became more i don't know liberalized democratized or more open perhaps well okay it was liberalized before but basically uh, advertising is not regular kind of speech it is commercial speech okay and whether commercial speech is protected on should be protected or not that's actually a big debate so in the United States, it's kind of like separate provisions for commercial speech and generally it is protected to a degree. In Korea, it was basically considered marketing communication and therefore not really part of that whole freedom of expression debate. So that was kind of how it has been historically. And pro-business lobby was kind of pushing to recognize that Advertising is also creative expression. Mm. It also needs to be protected in some ways. And they've been trying to do it for quite some time. And it was in 2008 that their challenge to constitutional courts succeeded. And for the first time in current history, advertising was recognized as protected speech. So did, did that produce a notable change in the advertisements pre and post 2008 then? And basically, I was doing my fieldwork and advertising in 2009, so just yeah. kind of one year after that happened. And it was actually interesting moments because things were kind of in movement and everyone was uncertain. On the one hand, many people would say, like, what's happening? Like, why suddenly is there like all this, you know, strange advertising on television? Mm. But those regulators were saying, but you kind of have to respect freedom of advertising these days. So basically, until that point, all, all advertising that was shown on those terrestrial channels, mm. like the main television channels, it had to be pre-approved, like every single one of them. Mm. Yeah, so controversial advertising just kind of wouldn't go through those layers of review. But after that constitutional court decision, that could not be done anymore that was considered like unconstitutional censorship so it was cancelled and now all advertising could be shown without that pre-approval so it kind of resulted in you know explosion of all kinds of controversial campaigns at the time so that bypassed the um pre-approval process from the government or the ministry and then it was just between the company itself and the the television uh, the the advertise the company that wanted to advertise they say it's like Tamisu so before it actually wasn't government it was some kind of industry like it was called Korea Advertising Review Board which okay. was kind of this intermediary group of representatives of business so technically it wasn't government censorship it was kind of okay. industry self-regulation and mm. when I did like my research before that was cancelled they were kind of pretty sensitive about like no 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 we are not censors we are like self-regulators so that's kind of before 2008 after 2008 it was between companies and media outlets mm. but after advertising has aired there is there was there still is um kcsc korea com 
Communication Standards Commission, and their job is to make sure that what's shown in the media doesn't violate any rules. So they could kind of go back and say, like, okay, you show this advertising, this is problematic. We issue you a warning. And mm -hmm. it kind of became different system that media outlets were responsible for making sure their advertising is meeting standards, but then they had like all this pressure from advertisers to just kind of show and, you know, kind of go with provocative stuff. Mm. Yeah, because it, it, it becomes more competitive and they need to stand out then, I guess, when the, especially when the checks come after the effect, not before. You said it was about the time you were doing your field work, like 2009. Is that, I, I remember reading one of your papers where you were talking about working in a, an advertising agency. Yep. Can you give any like insight to, to what it was? Like you, you were describing some very Wuhan people, you know, people flying to Europe for the weekend and then doing this. It sounded very, I'll get my, because I'm in a completely different world to you, it sounded very, Devil wears Prada and very, very sophisticated and very flash and very glamorous when I was reading it. But what was the advertising industry like, like on the ground level in 2009? So, yeah, it was the winter of 2009 into 2010, I guess, like around this time. Mm. Uh, and I was an intern at an advertising agency at. Um, yeah, so. In a way, I guess like with advertising agencies in Korea, there are kind of two big influences which are not really compatible. On the one hand, you kind of have this image of advertising as this creative industry where you have this eccentric types who, like as you said, glamorous and just do all this kind of eccentric thing. So kind of like this cult of creativity, eccentricity, and mm. in a way, many people go into advertising because they kind of like get enchanted with that. On the other hand, historically in Korea, advertising industry developed kind of differently. So basically, most advertising agencies say, kind of branched out of Korean corporations. So they started as in-house agencies. So they would be kind of smaller branches with like within big conglomerates. So mm -hmm. the logic there is basically a corporate job in a relatively unimportant subsidiary. Mm -hmm. So in a way it is kind of like this tension between this international you know, legend of the creative and actual reality when a lot of advertising work is just, it's another office job and people kind of have to deal with like all these office hierarchies and in a way not really perform that cult of creativity, which they were into when they got into the profession. So yeah, kind of everyday life at advertising agency was pretty much like an I guess I imagine like a regular office work, mm. but you know, the nature of work itself, I think was probably much more interesting than regular office jobs because we did have like, we would, would be working on specific accounts and trying to, you know, do research. Like I remember one of the campaigns we were working on was for some fried chicken chain. So as a part of research, we had to try like all fried chicken chains in the area, like, you know, so like, yeah, we are eating fried chicken again. Yes. So, 
kind of compare it. So all things like that were kind of interesting. Was it was it a very female dominated industry? And I only ask this because in your work you described various people and. Uh, I remember you talking about the soju campaign, the um, Oh Cool, I think it was that one. And and that was also a female driven campaign to try to sort of liberate and in terms of, but the advertising industry when you were there and when you were eating your fried chicken, was it, was it a female driven industry or was it just 50-50? It was just like a normal office. Did Do you have any sense of that? It was not female dominated industry at all. Okay. So basically, again, it's been a while since I spent time in Korean offices, but you would have many women and kind of entry junior positions. Mm. And as you kind of get higher in ranks, fewer and fewer and fewer women. And like at a kind of managerial level, Mm. like when I was an intern, there were none, but like a couple of women were promoted like half a year after I left. So in a way, it was kind of heavy on women and entry, excuse me, level positions. It's fascinating. I'm not sure if you saw it, but there was a, a, a drama called Nai Hebang Ildi, My Liberation <laughs> Notes, which featured a little bit of that sort of entry level workers in advertisement companies. Um, as we talk about these advertisements and, and these commercials in this media, I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on the difference between the career portrayed in the media and the and the career that we perceive in real life. Because commercials and advertisements, I've often lamented that on Korean television, everybody is beautiful. Like if I watch British television, there's there's bald people, there's fat people, there's there's beautiful people as well, but there's all sorts on there. And I think even more and more, there's a there's a move to show uh, different. I'm not sure how to word this sensitively, forgive me, uh, physical conditions. So you might see people with various uh, uh, challenges as well. I, I find South Korean television for the most part, is just very beautiful, hyper real. Do you have any thoughts on this depiction between career in the advertisements, career in the commercials and, and the real life of Korea? Is that distinction growing farther and farther? Are we going into sort of baudrillards simulation and things like this or is that just the nature of advertising and that happens everywhere it's actually a very interesting question because it kind of gets to the question like what is advertising supposed to show because is advertising supposed to show reality as is because generally if advertising is too realistic people find it boring or problematic and often criticisms of advertising would be that they're kind of portraying some behaviors which actually happen in everyday life, but no one likes. So for example, like, I don't know, classic example, like objectification of women in advertising. Mm-hmm. Like that happens in life all the time, but somehow the defense doesn't really work. The expectation is advertising should somehow show like, um, you know, sanitized, cleaned up version of reality. So in my work, I'm relying on this communications column, Michael Schutzen, who theorizes advertising as capitalist realism. So the idea is to kind of socialist realism, like the parallels to socialist realism, which kind of portrays this 
sanitized socialist reality, not quite as is, but how it should be. So Schutzen argues that's kind of what advertising does. So it kind of gives a picture of this prettified capitalism, not that it actually is, but how it should be. And in a way that's kind of the genre rules of advertising to show like improved version of reality. So I think this advertising is definitely happening quite a lot. And in a way it is expected to show that. Mm. And so the the capitalist realism, which when I read in your work, I, I, I thought was Mark Fisher. It's interesting to know it's a different theorist, but it's not so much a utopia or a dream vision, but rather it's the current vision, but with the bad stuff taken out, with the sanitized modernity. So it's not necessarily a future vision, is it? It's not sort of this, here's everything changed, how it could be if we got all our act together, but it's, here's the world now, but we're going to remove all the objectification and the racism and all of these things. So it's sanitized reality in that sense, rather than a, a, a dream of the future. I think that's pretty accurate. And I guess like you mentioned Mark Fisher, so he also uses this capitalist realism term, but he kind of yeah. uses it slightly differently in a way that's kind of how I got to read him. So in a way, he kind of takes it from Schutzen and says, well, okay, it's just not interesting to just talk about advertising. Let's talk about kind of capitalism in general. And Fisher's definition of capitalist realism is basically this idea that it's impossible to imagine a world which is not capitalist. And in a way, mm. that's kind of how it works. So in a way, that's like a, I guess, important critique, but it's not really relevant for advertising. And I guess since my work was on advertising, I was kind of sticking with that image. So for Schutzen, that's basically a way to kind of gently critique advertising mm. to say that, well, you know, it's just like all this beautified portrayals. Of course, that's like consumerist propaganda. What do you expect? Um, I think it's also what I'm doing in my work. I'm kind of taking this argument, but I'm trying to like twist it a little bit and try to read it more in a way actually you said kind of like more like dreams and desires like what actually people want the world to be and advertising how, how somehow shows that mm -hmm. it's it's very easy as an academic to get cynical about stuff and we, we mentioned fisher and things like that but i find when i'm teaching students theorists and things like that so many academics they just like tear stuff apart and it's like look and we we show all the strings and nuts and bolts and become very cynical I, i'm not saying that that's what you do but i think that's very easy to do in academia when you study them olga are you do you still find joy and beauty in advertisements and media do you still go like yeah look that that one's pretty cool i like that one or is it like no 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 i actually kind of traveled the other way Okay. So when I started research on advertising, I was kind of like very negative and cynical about that. Mm. Well, actually, I don't really want to use the word cynical because I don't think that's what it means. But kind of like pretty negative, pretty critical about it. And, you know, like at the origins of this project, like kind of my first big research on advertising was kind of just like sincere puzzlement, like this kind of question, like, you know, 
this medium is very commercial. It tries to manipulate emotions, other things to sell something for profit. Like that's like highly problematic. Let's critique that. So in a way, that was kind of the starting point of the project. But when I started working on it, I'm like, well, okay, there's actually much more going on. And in a way, advertising is a discourse about commodities, kind of at the very basic level. But actually, it does much more, it says much more, and often it could be consumed as just kind of popular cultural product. So its commercial message could be ignored. Mm -hmm. And it is actually interesting to think, what does it do? Does it make advertising more effective? Or do we forget that it is advertising and kind of freeload on all the creativity that advertisers paid for? So that's an open question. Mm. The, you, it, it's a very good question. You keep mentioning creativity. And just when I hear this word, it, it's, a, it's a very broad question and it, it might not mean much, but is the Korean advertising world creative? The, the reason I ask this is there is often this conversation and it might delve into stereotypes and Orientalism. And I don't want to necessarily go there, but I want to ask you as somebody that studies it, because sometimes when I see a, you know, a lot of uh, Korean media or products, I'm like, wow, I, I've never seen that before. That's very different. Do you find the industry itself creative? Does it do creative things? It is a difficult question yeah so i would say that korean advertising is definitely interesting okay and creativity is kind of harder so actually when i was doing my field work people who were most critical of korean advertising were korean advertising people <laughs> they would be the ones saying like no it's not creative enough it's like not yeah it's basically not up to par and usually the argument would go, we want to do this creative, interesting advertising, but look at advertisers in Korea. It's like all these conservative people who don't want to do anything interesting. They just want a celebrity holding some, I don't know, product and saying mm -hmm. how great it is. So basically they would totally blame it on advertisers, like kind of companies that order advertising, and also on censorship boards saying like, okay, we could do like all this creative stuff, but like those sensors say stop us. So in a way, kind of, um, they were blaming industry structures on impossibility to do the kind of creative work they really wanted to do. It was very common for junior advertising people to kind of do what they call mock campaigns to enter competitions. So usually like you enter competition, something you did for a company, but if you cannot actually do it as a real advertising, you just ask their permission and do kind of like a mock campaign. So like many of them were doing that just because there was really no opportunity to do it in real life. So it kind of had to be negotiated between expectations from the industry and ambitious of in, ambitions of individual creators. Having said that, um, one thing that I found really interesting about Korean advertising, that there is like certain room tolerance and even appreciation for advertising, which 
kind of goes quite far from regular commercial advertising. So often that would be some kind of <clears throat> image campaigns for big corporations. Mm -hmm. And they would tell like some super sentimental stories, which leave this kind of warm feeling. And if you don't know what the, what the company is doing, you'll never guess from that commercial, but it's just like sweet, nice, kind of this humanistic message. And there is like a lot of appreciation for that kind of advertising in Korea, which kind of moves away from advertising. Like, mm -hmm. so sometimes it's like described Kwango Seroptian and Kwango. Advertising, which is not quite like advertising, which is kind of like a strange praise for advertising, if you think about that. It's so good that you forget to see it as an advertisement. I think that's what the best films do. You forget you're watching a film and you're seeing something play out. Could I ask you, on these advertisements that move away from advertisements for the big companies, is it correct to say that they they play, I think you use the word human emotions, but they do that sentimentality. They do that, they try to get that very melodramatic kind of emotional response for the people. So it's not like a high octane, sexy thing. It's not so much a catchphrase like a, a WhatsApp or a Budweiser or a McDonald's thing, but it's more that kind of that emotion, that sentimentality, that melancholy, I mean, other people might so It's kind of like ordinary people living ordinary lives and mm. like dignifying that everyday experience of everyday people and just kind of experiences that sentimental warmth from that. Like the campaign I'm describing, like in the introduction of my book, it says like for this telecom telecommunication company mm. and it shows like a black and white slideshow families spending time together and the soundtrack is let it be sung by children Oof. like yeah so yeah. kind of like very very sentimental yes yes as I, as I age and have children of myself, I find myself even more and more moved by these things, even if I don't want to be. Like when I was young, I would look at those things and I, I would balk and I would scoff. But as I get older, even even I'm moved by by the sentiment. Well, the interesting question to me would be like, why you don't want to, move, want to be moved by that? Probably elements of machismo or growing up in that men should be stoic or sort of you know, I grew up watching James Bond and things like that. So there's probably all these preconceived ideas of uh, British more than Korean masculinity in, in involved in that, I would suggest. That's actually kind of one of the ethnographic discoveries I did in the co course of my fieldwork that basically the appropriate way to engage with such advertisements here is mm. actually to be moved. Yep. And I kind of wanted to critically read into them, like, don't you know, it's a corporation trying to, you know, sell you stuff, manipulate your feelings. Don't you feel like, I don't know, cynical, ironic or something? Mm. And people I would say to here, like, so cynical, can't you just appreciate the message? So in a way, like, I kind of realized that my cultural scripts require me to kind of have like a little bit of this critical distance towards advertising. Mm -hmm. And I guess it seems like you're kind of coming from in a way similar background that like, yeah, we know it's advertising and we know it's sentimental, but yeah, I'm kind of like, yeah, I'm not really moved. But here in a way, like who cares it's advertising? The message is beautiful. So 
why not? And it's Korean advertisements for Korean people. Uh, and, and so that's the target audience, isn't it? Sometimes it, I remember watching so many movies and dramas and things here and just not getting it and just being like, really, that's the conclusion. That's how you end it. And Korean people say, yeah, that's brilliant, you know? And so you slowly have to learn. I think the language helps to, to see it through those, through those eyes. I, I've become less critical, I guess, cynical of, of K-pop and things like that. I try to open up a little bit, but it's hard do it all the way. Um, Olga, you, we, we, we talked about Mark Fisher a little bit, but in your work, you also have sort of like Slavoj Zizek, you know, Wolfgang Haag, you have, you have others and there's, there's Mark, Marxist analysis or the, there's, there's an economic analysis. And, you know, you mentioned the liberation of South Korean society and certain discussions, books have been banned in South Korea during the sixties, the seventies, the eighties. It's uh I remember going to graduate school and having professors in like international political economy textbooks and they would get to Marxism and they would just skip the whole thing as if to say, we are not talking about that. That's too dangerous. And yet in your work, you, you do use it and, and you're working in Korea, publishing in Korea. I, I want to ask two questions based on that. The first is where is the value in those lenses or if, in what sense are those lenses applicable and useful? And the second one is, do you receive any negative feedback? Do people look at you kind of side-eyed a little bit and going, oh, you're going on that Marxist thing again, which wouldn't be a problem in Europe or something like that. I'm just wondering in the, the local context here. That's an interesting question because kind of, to me, it's like very obvious thing that like, if I write about advertising, how can I not bring up commodity fetishism at least a little bit like i'm not going into that in detail because it's such a well-known argument so in a way like because advertising is basically a capitalist institution you kind of need capitalist theories to analyze it and that's mm. kind of where like this marxist concepts of well ideology commodity fetishism come in very handy um do i get any pushback for that well not really. If anything, I get the pushback for not kind of leaning in hard enough into like those concepts. Because in a way, like scholarship on advertising, like unless you do it in business school, but kind of doing it in humanities, social sciences, it would be very much based on Marxist theory, kind of Marxist cultural studies. Mm -hmm. And what I'm doing in my work, in a way, it is a starting point, but having done this ethnographic research, I kind of realized like, okay, that's very useful for kind of sketching a bigger picture, but actually what happens on the ground, it kind of gets messy and you have this like capitalist logic of advertising, which is supposed to sell commodities, mm. but sometimes it doesn't sell commodities. Sometimes it just makes people cry because they moved by sentimental message. So in a way, like in my work, I kind of try to basically set up different levels of analysis mm. and kind of keep this Marxist level at, in a way, kind of broad structural level and bring things down an ethnographic level and kind of show like, okay, things are kind of messy on the ground. So actually like the pushback I get is like, okay, you are not like giving sufficient attention to like, you know, how advertising is promoting certain ideologies and doing other things. I actually think 
it is important to notice that advertising might be structurally created to do that, but it doesn't necessarily accomplish it. Like, as I was saying, sometimes advertising circulates as popular culture. And in a way, it might be failing as advertising if you think of it as a commercial medium, but it could be successful, popular, popular cultural product. So I'm kind of interested in like those moments. And because I'm not kind of going hardcore critique, that's where I often get pushback. That's fascinating that they want you to delve deeper, like edge deeper into that. Into I also that think it's system. also kind of like a question of context because I started this work during my PhD in Toronto. And, you know, there, like, you have many, many, many graduate courses, which would have, like, this Marxist perspective as mm. kind of starting point. So, in a way, departing from that is harder. So, yeah, kind of different academic roles in different places. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it it, it is changing. I think sort of the it, it's become popular to a certain degree. If I write a column that's got that kind of Marxist approach in it, there will be a lot of attention to it there's there's some fascination uh to those ideas uh at the moment and i think like with popular culture it is a very popular topic and different ways to theorize it include like kind of marxist analysis which could get us to very provocative insights like i'm kind of thinking about this whole culture industry argument mm -hmm. which you know basically a way to talk about mass-produced popular culture as, you know, put it very crudely, like basically ensuring the continued obedience of the masses who supposedly, who subjected to like this uh, popular cultural products. And, you know, that critique has been around for quite a while. It has yeah. been extensively critiqued for elitism, for, like, not respecting agency of consumers. But then, you know, if you start looking at K-pop industry and pay attention to, like, a dozen of K-pop bands which are produced mm. every year, you kind of think, like, okay, they're all very different, have very original concepts, but in a way, kind of also the same. <laughs> so, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like the Frankfurt School analysis and all that, it all all seems to apply. What I what I try to tell my students, what young people around me is like, capitalism, Marxism. These these two hundred years old. Please make something new. I'm sick of all these old ones. Like I I want the new one to come out. Like where's the where's the new economic theory? I think we're still waiting for that. But rather than can we move on, if I may, to the idea of celebrities? Because you, you just mentioned K-pop stars and you, you have done some work <laughs> on celebrities and uh, they do play a big role in advertisements here, uh, the celebrities. Um, are there certain elements of celebrityhood different in South Korea than celebrities elsewhere? I, I, is it just the case, Olga, of celebrities are celebrities? doesn't matter where you go. You know? A Russian celebrity is the same as a Senegalese celebrity is the same as an Indian celebrity, or is there something specific about the nature of celebrities and the way they work in media and advertising here in South Korea? Well, I would say like a little bit of both. So the bottom line, and I'm thinking like a very old definition by Daniel Burstyn, like celebrity, someone famous for being famous. 
Yeah. So that formula kind of still works in Korea. And if anything, like Korean celebrities seems to have perfected that because, you know, every little, you know, media appearance, every little thing becomes like the event which could be reported. So celebrity is like generated and regenerated. So in that sense, that just kind of like that celebrity machine of, you know, producing and reproducing well-knownness. But in terms of differences, um, that was written about that, like in one of my articles, Heikli calls this expectations, additional expectations of Korean celebrities to, well, for lack of a better word, behave well. Yeah. Like that they are supposed to be, you know, good citizens. They're supposed to be role models. Like, you know, if in the West, like drinking, drugs, all those things, like, yeah, that's what celebrities do here. No shouldn't be happening. So in a way, like this expectation that they are not only famous for being famous, but also kind of deserving of their fame. So in a way, like, you know, so-called cancel culture in Korea started much earlier than anywhere else. We could think about that because like celebrities would get in trouble if some even rumors would surface about, I don't know, sex tapes in case of female celebrities. And mm. even if they are just rumors and proven to be rumors and not have any substance, like reputations careers have been ruined so that's kind of like reputation wise like that's important to avoid like any kind of moral controversies and of course in terms of being good koreans mm. being like responsible korean citizens and i guess for male celebrities like the army is a big question like that they have to go in army and you know not to try to avoid it and all those things and yeah it, it it feels like sometimes that just where i come from in the uk that if you become a celebrity you get sort of almost carte blanche to do what you want you can you can be a, a Liam Gallagher or, or or the Beatles and go off and and do drugs and live the party lifestyle and you're sort of beyond morality or the law or social and they will say well yeah you've earned it look at you you're at the top you can do those things and not everybody does do that some people will be celebrities and still live very normal or uh, you know conservative lives but in Korea, it feels like the opposite the closer you get to the top the more restricted your life would be rather than that freedom opening up I mean, you mentioned sex tapes. That would be people like Ivy, I believe it was. Yeah, but that's the one I was thinking. Yeah, I was here for that. But it just seems like the the more the bigger the celebrity you are, even things sort of like dating or anything, just becomes so restricted. And I'm not sure how common. In those two examples, they feel very different to me. I'm just not sure how common those two are in other places around the world in terms of celebrity. Whether, you know. British examples that I give, they're the kind of exception or whether no, in South Korea, this idea that the more famous you get, the less freedom you have. That's the that's the interesting one. I kind of present in an article, the article where, well, I kind of develop those ideas to various international audiences. And I do not recall anyone kind of making that point like, yeah, that's not unique to Korea in our mm. country. Same thing. I mean, I'm sure it happens. But I think here it's kind of like a very mainstream central part of celebrity culture. Yeah, and they sort of, they even use the, use the word like tepio, 
right or, or representative people come yeah. representative because sometimes I don't know how we get into this but you're sometimes not an individual you have to be like kyosu or you have to be appa you have to be a role and these people when they become celebrities and they achieve these things they become a depio for the for the nation whether it's in media or acting and the the kind of weight of the show the world the country is on their shoulders to a certain extent isn't it must be as we talk about these cross-cultural comparisons you've written Olga about um the opposite of orientalism which I'm not sure if I've ever said this word out loud occidentalism okay. yes yes okay thank you for for checking my English for me you, you know when you read a lot and you that I don't know occidentalism yes um so uh, this would be uh depictions of the West in Korea that are inaccurate, incomplete, yet become part of the defining narrative, perhaps. And you, you did some work on Squid Game, looking at Korean depictions of foreigners, right? And they would either be either the lower class figure like Ali, who is reliant and dependent on his Hyungs, or the elites above who were manipulative and Machiavellian and, and, and things like that. So very polar extreme examples. Can you give us, can you play out this idea or why this was interesting to you or what insights you got about representations in Korea of non-Koreans in the media? Like, as you said, like, kind of the idea of Orientalism is much more familiar, much more widely discussed. So, like, you know, that's critique from Edward Said from, I guess, late 70s. Yeah. And this idea that basically when non-Western other is presented as a opposition of Western self, but is kind of minus sign. Like, the other is non-rational, non-modern, exotic, passive, like, all those things. And in a way that's basically those statements, what they do is they construct the Western self in opposition of those qualities which are kind of pushed on someone else. Mm. So basically, again, like in Said, he basically connects it to colonialism, imperialism, and shows how those discourses were instrumental at that. So that's, I think, a very known idea. And Occidentalism is kind of taking that critique but to depictions of the west in i guess non-western locales and korea is one of them and generally it would also be a stylized image of the west constructed in opposition to the non-western self mm -hmm. so again the other and again, this other is kind of very simplified, made like easily digestible. Occidentalism kind of a bit more controversial than Orientalism, because I guess, like, as you said, not many people write about it. And also with Occidentalism, the way it works, like depending on the context, it could kind of come with plus sign or minus sign. So what I mean, like in Korean contexts, um, <clears throat> like, the way Westerners are talked about, let's say, like around Seoul Olympics, 
So this idea of advanced nations, which are like more rational, more technologically advanced, more clean, more this, so basically kind of the Western other, which we are not, with which we need to catch up. Mm. And of course, that's like a very kind of one-sided representation, but this idea of this accident put to work for certain local agendas. So not the question how those Westerners actually are, but what work those depictions do. So that's like one way to do it. Mm -hmm. The other way to do it, like, yeah, like those Westerners, they are too rational, too cold. They don't get like our tones. They don't get like our feelings. So again, the other as very different from self and the picture kind of depends on this like, contrast, contrast created. Mm -hmm. So in a way, that's kind of the idea I am working with here. And I guess Squid Game kind of was very tempting to read through those lens. Because on the one hand, you have this Ali, who is like a classic orientalized, you know, character who is presented as childlike, kind of mm -hmm. not really depend like kind of dependent on like his Korean partners so he is not like really fully participating in this game just because he is so naive not quite modern to fit into this capitalist competition mm -hmm. but then you have like this VIPs who are also kind of caricaturish and they are like this very you know clear villains and again they are not like real people but like a particular figures into which like certain things are projected what really interested me about that olga is that you said how the depiction of the other whether it's do please correct me if i'm wrong but the depiction of the other whether it's positive or negative is often used for domestic ends so whether it's orientalism or occidentalism and whether it's a, a positive portrayal or a negative portrayal nevertheless these portrayals are used to achieve various goals or to whether it was the sole 88 olympics to try to develop the country and go look these guys have got bathtubs and color tvs and toilets we we need those things there was a a an end to be achieved domestically and maybe with squid game as well there was a way of sort of criticizing the the decadence or the capitals on the west is that a, in your understanding of orientalism or occidentalism using the other and it's not just using it without reason but it's using it to achieve a domestic objective well, usually, yes, that's kind of the whole point of those critiques is to not to say like, okay, those representations are wrong, of course, they're wrong, but mm -hmm. kind of ask, what do those depictions actually do? And in case of Orientalism, like you kind of make a jump, like, okay, they are pre-modern, we need to come and modernize them. Mm -hmm. So kind of like that movement move and this occidentalism again it's kind of well it was like accidentalism is kind of there's like a certain room for ambivalence there because on the one hand like okay those westerners maybe they have i don't know technology and high culture whatever you're mm -hmm. focusing on but what are the costs of that like look how rational and cold they are and we have like you know our family values or something else so kind of like you know what did they pay to get so modern 
and do we really want to pay the price? So kind of like that room of ambivalence. But again, the conversation is not about them. The conversation is about us. Mm-hmm. And they are the tool to talk about us, to kind of put it in those terms. That's... It, I'm, I'm still trying to wrap my head around it, but I think I'm getting somewhere with it. I... I spoke to Colin Marshall recently, and he had this thing that he put out in in one of the, I'm not sure if it was the New Yorker or something else, but where he questioned why dystopian Korean visions resonate really well in the West, particularly whether they're sort of neoliberal criticisms of neoliberalism or things like this. So I'm thinking of Squid Game, Parasite, I'm not sure how many of these you've watched, but South Korean criticisms of the system or criticisms of themselves, they seem to resonate really well in the West. There there seems to be a lot of attention on them. That was what he was trying to explore. Do you, do you have any, do you have any view on whether or not it is correct that negative, negative portrayals of Korea by Koreans seem to resonate to some degree in the West, it seems to be like, yeah, that's right. I'm kind of wondering, is it like negative portrayals of Korea that resonate or portrayals of Korea that resonate? Because it seems like in a way, Korea kind of having this moment of people being fascinated with Mm. Korea because kind of Asian and different. So here is like we having like that little bit of this Orientalism going perhaps, but also it's like very modern, kind of cool in a way that you have like this K-pop bands, you know, being popular all over the world. Also, you know, the fact that Korean technology, like Samsung phones are quite popular internationally. So I think there is like this general kind of curiosity about Korea as this like freshly freshly noticed place which may, might have not been on people's radar for a while I mean that just kind of general impression in terms of dystopian visions resonating again I'm not a big consumer of popular culture but in a way are there kind of comparable dystopian visions produced by like let's say North American filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And my sense is like those dystopias kind of don't quite go in those social directions. Like usually it's like, I don't know, some zombie apocalypse or like some kind of more grander disasters and Korean dystopias kind of go into this social critique. So maybe they're kind of feeling a niche that's just not taken. And I guess the interesting question, why are those things are produced in Korea? And I do not have a definitive answer, but maybe like one way to think about it is like who produces those films? And like in Korean studies, like we often talk about like this three, six generation, mm-hmm. kind of like the people who were, I'll get it all wrong, I think. Uh, basically people who were like active during democratization movement and grew up like with this Marxist critical ideas. And in a way, those people 
are, I guess, in their 50s, maybe early 60s now, and mm -hmm. they are kind of influencing cultural industries and many other industries. So in a way, like those kind of critical sensibilities, they are shared by many people in power in Korea now. So I wonder if it kind of trickles down to movie industry and it's like kind of allows for social critiques in popular culture, which don't quite happen in other places. But that's just like a wild speculation. I like wild speculation sometimes. The um, the, the the three eight six, the people born in the sixties went to university in the eighties and then were in their thirties. Yeah. I've seen exactly. that referenced in in Korean language books now as the en uh, paluk. So they're still always born in the sixties. They still always went to university in, in the eighties, but because their age changes now, they're just the they're just the en uh, paluk. That's the way they do that. It's fascinating to me that the sometimes the most commercially successful cultural products in a capitalist system are criticisms of capitalism. That seems to be like you can you can make a film that criticizes uh, capital. You can make Parasite. You can make Squeak, and that is the thing that will make you know billions. I think that's the thing that gets all the analysis going. That you can't even rally against it because rallying against it becomes successful and seems to reify the system it's almost impossible not to play the game isn't it I i'm not sure i exactly understood your comment but it kind of reminds me like you brought up slavoj zizek like his whole you know argument how ideology works through cynical distance so in a way like watching parasite and saying like yeah you know all these bad things are happening in the societies and awful kind of feel like yeah I, I know that there are all the social problems I know that I have all these issues and once I know that I know I could just go participate in those things but from kind of critical distance and feel good about kind of not really being part of it mm -hmm. so yeah in a way I think that probably happens quite a bit there's there's that idea of I, I agree with you there's that idea of catharsis as well or something you know we we watch one of these uh negative portrayals or it might not just be about capitalism it might be about other social issues and then we feel that that feeling inside of us has been resolved because we've watched this the the product did it for us and now we can go and buy our starbucks and consume with impunity that would be zizek would use more colorful language than me when he when he describes it i've i've shown some like zizek videos to my to some of my undergrads and they the korean undergrads and they just look at me like david what is this like please is it, a very if you don't know who he is and you see him for the first time it's a very interesting experience the way he talks and swears and just uh gestures i guess yeah once i was at his talk in new york so yes he is quite a presence in person as he is on his videos <laughs> I envy you even more. Um, is there is there anything, Olga, that we've missed in advertising, or that, that that we've missed in in your work? Because you know, we 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 tried to talk about some of the things there, the liberation, this idea of when advertisements become a a political space. Maybe I'll just ask you this question. Sometimes when I'm drinking with my brother-in-law, and he's he's forty-five. And when he gets really drunk, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but when he gets quite drunk, he'll often start playing his favorite advertisements on his phone. And they're, they're generally like beer. I love this example. 
they're generally like beer commercials from the early 90s and things like this okay. drinking commercials do you remember this one do you remember this one and everyone's just like oh yeah but he will go through these and show them and he will sit there and dance because the jingles okay. and the the actions they often came with uh you know whether it was the hitting cup of cart or these these beer commercials there was a certain way to do something it was not just a sound but there was also a gesture or a vocalization that he remembers that he wants to reenact or that he wants to to reminisce over and you know it might sound like oh this is very making it up because you do advertisements but that's genuinely how he reacts you know every once a month or something when he's had this that he wants to go back to the old advertisements and i'd never thought about it for a while but they do sort of play a role in some people's life it's like you know these songs or these memories these ideas that stick in there i guess i'm asking you do you have any uh comment either on that example or or on the nature or the role of advertisements in our life in general I love this example. Thank you for bringing it up. It kind of makes me feel like yay. The things I I got things right in my book. <laughs> well, I guess like one of the points I'm trying to make, and the point this point is generally counterintuitive to many people, is to basically make a case that it is important sometimes to consider advertising as a part of popular culture as a part of public culture. So that is not at the expense of critique of advertising as a commercial capitalist institution. That all holds. Mm -hmm. So that's like all there. But when advertising kind of gets produced, gets into circulation, there is no way to make sure it kind of stays that capitalist instrumental medium. Because, you know, like those commercials your brother-in-law is watching, like he probably remembers his beer commercials, he probably doesn't remember which beers they are for because it doesn't matter. Mm. What matters is kind of like entertaining stories. So in a way, it is part of this popular culture, public culture. And that's kind of the first point. And second point, if it is a part of this popular culture, perhaps it requires more scrutiny. Like kind of going earlier to my points, like if we kind of consuming it as entertainment, perhaps the logic that, well, you know, it's just like marketing stuff to sell things, we shouldn't be expecting too much of it. Perhaps that logic doesn't hold because the way we're consuming it, we consume it as popular culture. So in a way, perhaps there should be same standards, same expectations that it kind of delivers well certain values and other things. And in a way that how it has been in Korea for, well, until about 2008 when things have shifted. So the fact that advertising as a commercial medium was kind of secondary to the fact that it is like a public medium in the mm -hmm. sense that it circulates publicly and consumed, you know, similar to like, I don't know, songs, because that could have been a song, like it could have been a music video, right? So it sounds like... Again, in your example, that how it has been used. So in a way, like that's kind of the tricky argument to make because on the one hand, I'm kind of arguing for importance of advertising. And on the other hand, I'm saying that it is not really about advertising selling commodities, that maybe its impacts are elsewhere. So that also needs to be considered. 
So it's not like getting kind of advertising off the hook as marketing communication. That's definitely part of that. But there is like this other aspect, which I think is often overlooked. And that I'm trying to bring into conversation about advertising. Excellent. Can you think of any Korean advertisements? Because the next question I want to ask is about our advertisements dying out in the modern world. I, I don't see them any. I've got all my computers and Netflix shut down. I don't see the advertisements, right? Um, have any Korean advertisements transcended into popular culture? So, uh, for example, just off the top of my head, I can think of non-Korean. The Budweiser was up ones where they the, the was up. I can think there was the one Mr. Wazo, this kind of yellow uh, guy that did that Levi jeans. And there was a very famous Guinness one Guinness, the uh, the alcoholic drink. They had these amazing adverts that everybody would do the dances and things like that. Um, have there been any Korean advertisements that you know or that you think stand out that they're no longer advertisements, but they're talked to talked about alongside dramas or k-pop songs or other mean examples of popular culture oh i gonna don't watch tv much since i actually don't own a tv so that's um, that's my point that's my next point by the way yeah well i actually would like to go to that point as well but there are definitely like again I can think of examples which definitely entered popular culture for a short time. Hmm. Whether they're still with us, I'm not so sure. So again, going to 2009, 2010, when I was doing my field works, I was like this uh, series of ads for KT. And they came up with a slogan, Ole. Mm -hmm. so the scenario is like something good happens. And the protagonist says, wow, then something better happens. And he's just screaming, Ole. So that Ole was everywhere, like for one mm -hmm. summer. Mm -hmm. And like, there were so many jokes, so many parodies. Like, I would so hear people in regular conversations using it. Is that part of everyday language anymore? I somehow doubt it because I don't think it's cool anymore. Right. But kind of like popular campaigns, they kind of have that tendency to do that. Again, I. Cannot think of recent examples of that happening, but that's not because it's not happening. It's just because I don't watch TV much. Neither do I. And I, I guess that's, I, I can still remember the jingles of like when I first came and I was learning Korean, the, the, the Rashi and Kashi and all these. Right. This, um, that's, I remember that one. Sanghwa Mani, Sanghwa Mani was another one. Um, but and there was another one with it was an advert for a pomegranate drink and there was a guy sat at a white piano and I think he was a member of maybe Tongbang Singhi but he would play this jingle and I'm not going to sing it for you because I can't quite get it right but those advertisements they're still imprinted it's like the first cut is the deepest but these days I have apps on my phone that means if I watch YouTube there's no apps on my YouTube there's no apps on my PC it's all kind of protected in some ways because advertisements are annoying um and even if i use a paid service like netflix there's no advertisements on that either is this we had a was it roland bart with the death of the author anyway have we got the death of the advertisement do we approach an end game with this 
It is an interesting question because in some ways we are, in some ways we are approaching a reverse of advertising kind of different forms. Um, well, maybe like to start with the death. Uh, so the tendency like has been like, as you say, no one wants to watch advertising because why? Like if I could block it, I will, right? Yeah. So in a way, it became much harder to kind of separate, to have advertising as like a separate thing that's somehow attached to content. So what has been happening, like all advertisers are trying to kind of make their marketing content more organically integrated and entertainment content they provide. So it's kind of like more sponsorships, more kind of advertorial. So basically kind of like this, I guess, influencer industry is built on all that. So kind of advertising merging with entertainment. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, it is the death of advertising, but also death of entertainment because they kind of like meeting each other halfway. So in a way, it is like that one tendency that advertising, like as clearly marked advertising, that's becoming definitely a rarity. But that's not because marketing communication got any less pervasive and precisive in everyday life. So because the two, the <laughs> for example, now um, you could watch a YouTube video and some like halfway through the video, there will be an advertisement in the video. It's not like a, an advertisement paid by a company, but the person speaking will just stop and go, have you ever wanted to do this? And, and it's like a paid spot in there that you can't skip. And so when you blur the dis line between advertisements and entertainment, you lose both of them, essentially. When they were separate, you at least had them in their own distinct fields. This is the entertainment. This is the advertisement. And that, that works. But now when they're doing this, it's like you lose them both, don't you? Or you you could, the, well, I guess you kind of lose the purity of, well, I don't know if it is ever pure, but like the boundary becomes like really blurry and you're consuming entertainment, but your entertainment comes with some kind of promotions. And that's part of the deal. And your promotions come with entertainment as well. So they're, they're, they're both right. going around yeah. in these yeah, things. Yeah. You said, however, you would start with the death of advertisements, but there's a there's a renaissance, there's a rebirth somewhere. Well, in Korea, actually, that's kind of like my new research deals with that, because one of the things I've been interested, like, I'm sure you've seen them, advertisements on the public transportation for key celebrities, like birthdays for idols. So in a way, those are advertisements, but they are like very peculiar advertisements. They are bought by groups of citizens, in this case, K-pop fans, and they basically kind of using this medium of advertising, well, for their own pleasure to, you know, promote their stars, to go take pictures with those ads. Mm. And like, so in a way it is advertising, but kind of not your old commercial advertising. So that has been going for, I guess, like at least a decade at this point. So that's like a different way advertising is working. And one thing I'm really interested in that that started with K-pop stars and then generally people like it, but also there were also like different citizens groups which have been trying to buy space on subway and other public transportation to advertise their agendas. Mm -hmm. Like I was following the controversy last year when group that wanted to place an ad to commemorate like several 
they wanted to put an ad on the subway and they were refused because it was deemed too political. Mm. But like this kind of idea that you, anyone could pay money and put advertising anywhere, that somehow is a little bit in the air. And because it's much harder to sell advertising spaces now, like in the newspapers, on the subway, in a way, there is kind of more openness to that. So there's some kind of like this mutation happening. I think that commercial advertising is definitely retreating, but there is this new opportunity for like citizens' advertisements, which, yeah, I don't know how far it will go. Is it democratization or does it run the risk of conglomerates and you know taking over that thing and pushing political agendas not just on the news or in the entertainment but into our physical reality as well because i could, could see that working one way it, it democratizes the public space and it allows people to put their messages of adoration for their favorite k-pop star to commemorate uh, tragedies that have befallen the nation or perhaps them personally um and it, it really sort of gives voice to the people on the other hand, I could see such a system being hijacked by interest groups to push politics or certain messages into the public sphere where previously we might be kind of safe from them. You know what I mean? We know we can go and find them if we want them, but if we're just going to the coffee shop or if we're just going you know, to dinner or somewhere, sometimes we want a little bit of escape, don't we? We want to be able to shut them down when we want. Well, my impression is that the tendency that all these big advertisers, they want to be in your cell phone. Yeah. They want to get you on social media. They want to get you like when you're being entertained because that's like where the eyeballs are, like mm. the industry wisdom goes. So in a way, like subway advertising, for example, why it became available to citizens, it's because like, you know, corporations are not particularly interested in that. So like all these empty spaces and Subway is very happy to get extra money. So in a way, it is like placing particular message in a particular place. So it is kind of narrow audience, so to speak. So yeah. generally my impression has been, oh yeah, and also like another point that it's actually not allowed to put political messages in such places. So there's like a whole review board which bans, okay, bans many things like political, controversial, discriminatory, violating human rights. So basically only things which are not controversial in any way could pass through. And again, there were like challenges trying to like, okay, to make a case that, well, you know, if it is like a citizen's opinion on a matter of common interest why not but it does like one issue which is actually debated now and it's actually interesting to see how it will develop yeah very interesting because i don't know it korea's always felt a little bit more apolitical in the public sphere like it, it, you don't get these big public messages i tell you one place that i have noticed adverts and i do see them if i go onto my instagram account or something like that i scroll down it used to be sort of one every five posts would be an advertisement and now it's sort of like three every five or something. They've really okay. ramped up the advertisements uh, on social media. And I wonder how that's going to work uh, in the metaverse, for example. I, I was with um, Theodore Junyu at Yonsei, and he's got this whole metaverse thing. And he put me into it with this 180 degree cameras. And he's making these digital spaces. And there's going to be space in those digital spaces for companies, obviously, to, to add have you have you had any thoughts about uh 
Quango in the metaverse? Advertisements in the metaverse, Olga? Well, I haven't thought about advertising in metaverse, but there are like precedents, like there's all this virtual worlds. Yeah. Like, I don't know, Second Life, for example, which was kind of immersive game where well, you could live a second life. And part of what was going on there is for a while, quite a robust commercial economy with, you know, physical stores setting up virtual stores, like advertising and all that. So sure, like I'm sure we'll have advertising in metaverse. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure we will. And I'm glad that you say it's like Second Life because the metaverse doesn't seem as real and cool as it does to other people. It seems just like what we've done before. Um, just before I, I bring us around to these last couple of closing questions, is there anything that in, in your research or in advertising, in this idea of economic analysis, contemporary career that you think is is of relevance or that we might have missed or that we might have not quite addressed correctly? Nothing particularly comes to mind. Oh, okay, okay. Um, yeah. Next question for you, there's just a couple left, Olga, is um, what advice do you have for young people today? So we said earlier that you came here in 1998 and you're doing all your various things and then off into Canada and here, but if you were speaking to 18-year-old Olga, living in 2023, what would you tell her or her peers in order that they can better navigate the world, in order that they can, I don't know, do something? What, what advice would you give to these young people, Olga? You know, you gave me this question in advance, and it's a tricky one. I've been thinking about that for a while. And I guess the starting point is like, I am not really sure. I'm like in a position to give young people advice, like kind of blind leading the blind, not that I have everything figured out. Um, but like kind of grounding it in my own experiences, I was like, okay, what would I, like if there was one thing I would have done differently, what would that be? Mm. And I didn't come off with anything profound, but I did think that one thing I definitely would have skipped is like going to business school in Korea because I did an MBA at Yonsei and it was an interesting experience but probably not something that greatly benefited me in the back picture so kind of extrapolating from that into like more general advice I think it could be something uh, towards re regarding the importance of thinking for oneself and just mm -hmm. kind of taken somewhat critically like the ideas of general society what like what you should be doing and trying to kind of think okay maybe that sounds like good in theory but is that something that actually appeals to me so maybe some general thought like that I think that's incredibly courageous to say something like well I did this but I don't think it was worth it because normally we don't want to say that about ourselves we if we do something I think we're more inclined to say yes it was great even if we're not that sold on it because of our investment whether it's time or you know. well you know people who know me well they kind of find it hilarious that I did an MBA at some point because I'm so not an MBA type <laughs> I slowly getting to know and I heard this idea recently, Olga, when you said, you know, to extrapolate from your things. And of course, what could you have to tell people? But this idea I heard recently I liked, which was uh, the most personal is the most universal. Because I, I, I did this conversation with, with a young woman and I got all these messages about it. And she said to me, I, I never thought anybody would be interested in just my own 
personal stuff. But it was the personal thing that seemed to really resonate with, with other people. And, and I came across that idea that the most personal is the most universal. And I thought, I, I thought it was very nice, that idea that sometimes- well, our... Maybe personal things come up as like most authentic and in a way that's kind of easier to empathize, yeah. kind of to feel that position. And through that, you know, many things happen. Absolutely, yeah. We, and sometimes I think we lose authenticity in our in our modern politics and celebrities. We just want somebody that's you know off script and and doing these things. Um, now I would, if I can, I would like to ask you to ask a question about Korea for the next guest. And you have no idea who it will be. It can be deep. It can be shallow. But it's just a way to create yongyol across the episodes and uh, get something. So Olga, a, a question about Korea, please. It came up as a good one. Excellent. So yeah. if there was one thing you could change about South Korea, mm. what would that be and why? Because I know who the guest is. <laughs> I'm really looking okay. forward. I, I won't say, but I'm really looking forward to asking that question to that guest. Thank you for that. It's brilliant. Um, to, to close this conversation, the, your question from the previous guest, it's actually two questions. So I'll, I'll, okay. say, it, I'll, I'll say it twice if we want. This is a question from my previous guest, Colin Marshall, and he asks you, to what extent is Korea an Asian country? And to what extent is it a country in Asia trying to connect itself to the West? And that's the first part. To what extent is Korea an Asian country? And to what extent is it just a country in Asia trying to connect itself to the West? The second part is, to what extent is Korea a 5,000-year-old society? And to what extent is it a 75-year-old society trying to connect itself to its past? Okay, <laughs> that's that. That's, that's the many questions there. Yeah. Um, approach it as you will. You 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 have freedom, Olga. I guess I would approach it as an anthropologist, mm. and maybe kind of turn it around a little bit because, like many of those ideas, they kind of assume that there is Asia, there is West, and those are kind of clear fixed entities, which if you think a little bit about that, they're actually not. Mm. So like, what, what is West? Are we talking about North America? Are we talking about North America plus Western Europe? Like kind of, kind of gets complicated if you think about it, like for a little bit. Mm. So I guess I would probably be tempted to reverse this into actually a different question and think about like, why are people are interested in thinking about Korea through those categories and why why like we just not think about Korea's contemporary society where all kind of things happening like do we really need to kind of be connecting it to Asia and what do we gain if we do that so again I'm kind of like not sure if I mean obviously not answering the question I'm changing into a different question so I guess my answer would be that it really depends who is asking that and for what purposes. And mm -hmm. I think the starting point should be thinking like, why do we want to connect Korea to those ideas? Mm. Spoken like a true professor. 
I think that's the perfect <laughs> professor way to answer. Let me, if I can, no, but thank you. I, 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 I love it. Let me ask you one final question because I realize you're an anthropologist and can you give me personally one, one piece of it? Because I live here, like, can you tell me something about anthropology? Real life career, I, I'm going out, I live here, I work here, I interact with Koreans all day. Tell me something, can you tell me something about anthropology that I might be able to learn, to use, to apply, to, to remember a quote about it? Because I, I realize I know the definition of the word, but other than that, I would struggle to sort of name any theorists, any practices or anything like that. So could you give me something about anthropology that I can take? Party anthropology. Party anthropology. Is it as good as I think it sounds? Uh, I'm not entirely sure like how to answer that. So the question is how to is there something useful anthropology could offer to social interactions? My my question is, I know little to nothing about the subject. Is there, can you give me a quote that describes anthropology that I might be able to use in a lecture? Could you give me a an idea that I might be able to apply when I take okay. the subway? Something, just a, a takeaway. Okay, I guess like maybe one way like anthropologists like to present themselves that we are trying to make strange familiar and familiar strange. Meaning to go back like let's say for to advertising, which is like you know what I'm doing. So generally we all live in a world full of advertising and we think that we know it because of course we do because it's everywhere. But if you try to look at advertising in detail in a particular society such as Korea, suddenly we see like, well, it is kind of the same thing, but actually it's not the same thing. And in a way, the way it fits into society is kind of similar, but not exactly similar. So in a way, that's what kind of we are trying to do in anthropology, to put it in like super, super broad strokes, to take like some social phenomena and just kind of try to see them not as given natural facts that they are, but kind of try to like, okay, how could they be done differently? How they are done differently by different people under different circumstances? I love it. I love it. And I'm going to remember it to make the strange familiar okay. and the familiar strange. That's, that's fantastic. Dr. Fedorenko, thank you very much for this. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed speaking to you and, and thank you for the, the words of wisdom. Thank you very much. That was very interesting for me too.